Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. We're back. It's Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. And our guest, our next guest is Bob Ney. We're going to talk about all things Washington with our fellow correspondent. Bob, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Kevin. Okay, wow, what a week. Uh, why don't we start with... <laughs> why don't we I'm start with you're Trump. deciding where to start. I can't. The United Auto Workers is striking mm-hmm. against three... Uh, car plants uh, for the big three auto workers. They're getting paid. Their people are going to get paid 500 a week in strike pay. This has never happened before. Uh, President Biden was on the phone with both sides uh, in the last 24 hours. Tell us the latest. Right. Uh, it's the first time it's unprecedented that all three, the big three, are being striked against at one time. Now, the other kind of moving piece in this, Kevin, is the fact that Right now, the management, you know, the auto industry itself, they don't know where this is going to begin. There will be uh, announced strikes at three places, one in Toledo, Ohio, Wayne, Michigan, and uh, Wentzville, uh, Missouri. But what they don't know is what will happen next, because there are obviously tons of facilities across the U.S., and there could be then another pointed strike somewhere somewhere else in the country, somewhere else in the country. So that's an unknown that is making a bit of fear uh, for the big tree. The 500 a week is strike pay, which is, you know, better than nothing. But I've also got to point out that's going to make a little bit of a tense situation because, uh, you know, the 500 a week uh, is far less than uh, some of them make now. But, you know, again, the union has a strike fund, so that's you know, better than doing uh, nothing for the people on strike. The uh, company is going to lose. I was reading somewhere every within 10 days, they lose five billion. And of course, there are cars that are going to be on hold. People are saying that uh, when I say people, people involved in the union side and the management saying that it's hard to see how they're going to resolve this anytime quickly. So we might uh, be seeing this going on for quite a while. Bob, what is the role, as a former member of Congress, what's the role of Congress in this? There's got to be, there's always a moment in these protracted strikes where uh, the White House Chief of Staff or uh, the Speaker of the House uh, gets these people in a room and says, you're you're not leaving this room until uh, you have a deal or else we're going to make life very uncomfortable for all of you. Uh, Do you know, when does that happen here? Let let me answer that from two perspectives, one from the individual member. In the 24 years I was in public office at three different levels, two in the state house, one in the federal, I uh, definitely saw my share of strikes because I had a very heavy union district also in eastern Ohio. So at that point in time, what I really tried to do, and this is the individual answer for you as as a member, the member needs to try to talk to both sides. If you you know, go to one side and you kind of get right in the middle of it. And I'm not sure how much you're helping. So you've got to talk to both sides, I think. Uh, that's the individual response. And members, if they ignore it in the district, are going to get in trouble one way or the other. Now, the bigger picture, I can remember uh, the baseball strike 
And uh, we had a big argument internally amongst each other because some people said get involved in it and others said it's not the business of Congress to get involved in this. Clinton, uh, I actually was in the White House at the moment he got delayed coming down to talk to us because he was upstairs settling, basically on the phone, settling the strike. So I think what members of Congress can do, they can't really do a piece of legislation, but as a body, they can you know, take whatever side they want or take both sides and try to urge something to be done. Now, if it went into a protracted period of time, then you might see Congress trying legislatively to do something, but in the end, it's, it's tough for them to step in. Yeah. Okay. And what about the president? What's what's his role here? Well, I think his role again is to continue to do what what uh, President Biden is doing, which is I understand that he's talking to the union and he's talking to the management. And I think, uh, like I said, I use the example of Clinton and the baseball strike. He did that. Uh, so I think that's about all that Biden particularly can do. Now, from the management end, Biden's going to be viewed as you know a long-term pro-union guy. But again, it's possible the president at that power level could hear things from the management and, you know, with agreement, take that back to the union and and the union back to the management, et cetera. You know, I don't know how deeply a president can get involved, but he'll probably continue to keep his ear open to both sides. Uh, but the power of the presidency, you know, in itself doesn't hurt to have the president urging both sides to make this work. Look, politically, I mean, the jobs are important personally for people, but politically for Biden, you know, he doesn't want this strike to go on too long. It will not help the economy. Right. Uh, And at the same time as this is all going on, Bob, uh, the Justice Department, uh, accused by uh, the Trump uh, wing of the Republican Party of being uh, used as a political weapon against him, has now indicted the son of President Biden. What's going on with that? Well, it's interesting how you started that out about, you know, the, the weaponization. They're going after Trump. Uh, Hunter Biden's lawyers are accusing the Justice Department of the same thing that they are going after Hunter Biden because of politics. Abby Lowell, his attorney, is accusing uh, political pressure on the prosecutors played into this decision. And I don't believe that, frankly, Kevin, for a second, I'll tell you, and I'll tell you why. I have never seen in recent times a you know clear-cut case that was settled. It was settled in 2023. Hunter Biden had a plea deal. It was a sweet plea deal because he wasn't doing any time his diversion program really wasn't, uh, you know, for the gun charge, wasn't really uh, requiring him, at that, at least what I read, to do a lot like you normally do in the diversion program in your local courts, in your state and, and ours. And they go into court, and the lawyers for Hunter Biden say, well, yeah, this, yes, this exempts him from any future charges for anything, basically. And the Justice Department says, well, no, it doesn't. The judge is looking at it. Well, who's he reporting to? How's the diversion program working? And as I said to a couple of friends yesterday, they might as well have lobbed a grenade towards the judge's bench in court because then they sat three hours in front of the judge trying to come up with a way to make this work. And it didn't work. And then Hunter Biden, you know, pleads not guilty. And the next thing you know, the very department who did a complete plea deal with him with no time, you know, no, no jail time, turns around and now indicts him and probably, 
possibly, I should say, versus probably Kevin, they will probably bring charges on the taxes. So this is a clear-cut case, I think, of uh, lawyers and lawyers, one being Biden's lawyers and the other being Justice Department, of obviously coming out of a room thinking they're on the same page, but they're on different planets. I've never seen something so politically, uh, you know, tight and, and dangerous for the Biden administration to be handled in this way and to fall apart like it did. And at the same time, the Justice Department is indicting Hunter Biden. They're, uh, they're moving ahead on various cases against Trump and the other uh, alleged conspirators uh, to overturn the election. Uh, and all of this, as the presidential election begins to loom, I, I you, it, it's a waste of time to try to uh, sort of pull apart all the different scenarios, but we're headed for something we certainly uh, don't know the ending to, right? Well, you're right, Kevin, because, look, 90 indictments on Trump, and then you have Georgia, which, you know, the prosecutor, Fannie Willis, is, was attempting to put so many people together in the courtroom. The judge said yesterday, we can't, judge basically, I'm going to paraphrase here, said you can't physically handle that many people in the Georgia courtroom. So the judge severed that part of the trial where the judge is going to allow two people to have a speedy trial. Trump's going to be delayed with others. And I guarantee you the judge is going to sever Trump and some others from the group of, what, 17 people now. Uh, so that's taking a turn. In New York, the appeal, appellate court is putting the New York trial on hold for right now. The uh, trial, well, it's hard to keep up with this. <laughs> the trial for the classified documents is scheduled, you know, obviously, I think it's for next year. Am, am, am I missing one of the trials? I think I am. Anyway, the other, uh, oh, the Mara, no, no, that's the trial. I'm sorry. I'm I'm getting confused very publicly here. Anyway, th- th- these, yeah, okay. these are all going to blow apart in the election. And and lastly, Bob, uh, I've just read the Atlantic Magazine piece uh, summarizing the book, uh, the new book coming out about Mitt Romney. Uh, former Senator Romney is, I'm sorry, Senator Romney from Utah has announced mm-hmm. that he will not run for re-election, and he has some very, very blunt words for his fellow Republicans in that book. Yes, he does. And you know, I, uh, I was around Mitt Romney. He actually helped my election a couple of times, and um, I always I, people obviously are calling him a rhino, and I know the Trump base hates him. I fully understand that. But one thing I found about Mitt Romney, at least, uh, over a period of time. And people say, well, he took 53 different positions. But I find that he's he's fairly blunt on his perceptions and his criticisms. You know, he was with Santos when Santos purposefully, Congressman Santos sat right in the aisle where he knew national media would see him reaching his hand out to everybody. And Romney turned around and said, I know what you're doing. And he is going to be probably pretty critical because Romney has really kind of dished it out there and uh, it's been noted that a lot of the Republican base, they, they don't like Mitt Romney, but he's leaving. Uh, interesting enough is alluding to the fact that he's heading towards 80. And uh, so I think Romney has basically nothing to lose in being very, very blunt and very candid. Okay. Bob Ney, as always, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week.
Thank you. We're back. And whether it's new people in new places of leadership or physical renovations or great stuff coming up, the art scene in Vermont is on fire. And here to talk to us about it is Dan Ballas from Seven Days. Dan, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks, Kevin. Glad to be here. Okay. Uh, we've got a new Spruce Peak Arts Executive Director. We've got a new Barry uh, opera, uh, opera House. We've got uh, a director, and we've got renovations going on everywhere. And great. Why don't you start us off? Uh, sure, yeah. So um, this week we put out our annual uh, Performing Arts Preview issue. Um, the kind of late summer, early fall is traditionally the beginning of the Performing Arts season um that's changed a little bit and the season would run usually from the fall into the spring um but people are kind of booking a little bit differently post-pandemic um but we still put this issue out um right now anyway because it's a a good time to sort of take a look um sort of bigger picture at what's going on um in the performing arts in vermont um both kind of on stage and behind the scenes and uh, one of the things that we're noting this year is that um it's it's kind of a, a time of transition uh, for a lot of the theaters and performing arts centers in Vermont, whether that's um, new directors at places like uh, the Chandler Center in Randolph, um, new executive uh, directors at uh, Barry Opera House and, and Spruce Peak and Stowe, um, or even at a larger place like the Flynn. You know, um, executive director Jay Wall came on a couple of years ago, um, but that was like right at the height of the pandemic. So uh, most most arts places weren't really um, at full strength or full capacity, but this is sort of the first year that uh, the Flynn, um, at least from a calendar perspective, like really looks like the Flynn. So um, there's kind of a lot of moving pieces um, to the scene this year, and it's, it's uh, fun to watch. Well, I can't believe I missed the Audra McDonald show, but I see that Lyle Lovett is coming back to the uh, to the main stage at the Flynn. Yeah, uh, Lyle Lovett with John Hyatt. Um, I hope he got tickets because I'm pretty sure that one's already sold out. Um, but there are a ton of other um, great performances happening, um, kind of no matter what your taste. Um, you know, from a musical perspective, uh, Mavis Staples is, is coming. I'm really excited about that one. Um, and then there's all sorts of cool stuff, um, great uh, comedians uh, like Aparna and Charla, Elijah Schlesinger is coming, um, and incredible theater, dance, um, pretty much whatever whatever you're into, um, you'll probably find something uh, on a Vermont stage this year. It's, Dan, it's, uh, it's inspiring that a lot of these theaters are finding the, resor- the money and the resources to do renovations and expansions. Uh, the Rutland Paramount Theater is in the midst of a multi-million dollar expansion due to be completed in uh, 2024. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are. Um, they are, are doing all sorts of cool stuff there. Um, kind of building out on the existing theater space. Um, I think, I believe they're going to have, um, in addition to the to the main theater, they'll have um, some smaller rehearsal spaces, um, dressing rooms and classrooms and such. Um, really, I think the goal is to turn that into um, kind of a community hub, um, not just for the arts, um, but for kind of whatever folks in, in the Rowland area want to do. Um, similarly, uh, just a little bit further north on Route 7, um, at the Town Hall Theater in Middlebury, they just announced uh, earlier this summer, I think it's a $7.5 million um, expansion that they're hoping to complete. Um, I know they're breaking ground on it this fall, um, and that's also going to include uh, some new performance spaces in, exist- uh, in addition to the existing theater, um, including some outside, I think, um, and their their goal is to turn uh, the town hall theater into kind of a regional hub 
um, for the performing arts to kind of do sort of what, uh, you know, a theater like the Flynn does for Chittenden County. Uh, the Town Hall Theater might be something similar, probably on a slightly smaller scale uh, for Addison County. And we have new directors at uh, my favorite, the Chandler, uh, down in Randolph, and as well as Spruce Peak Arts in Stowe. Uh, Seth Soloway has come from Nashville, uh, from the uh, Blair School of Music at Vanderbilt. Yeah, um, he's got a, a pretty cool resume. Um, he was down at Vanderbilt for a while, and before that, uh, he was in Brooklyn um, doing uh, booking for a, for a theater there. Um, so he's got a pretty a pretty strong resume. I'll be I'll be really curious to see what he does uh, with the Spruce Peak because it's such a such a great space and so. Wow, and uh, you you begin your piece um, on a, on a, just a great inspirational story about what the Barry Opera House did for local. Uh, productions who had no home uh, during the flood. Can you talk to us about the role that the Barry Opera House played in, in, after the flooding? Absolutely. Um, so I'm sure everyone knows the, the big flooding in, uh, in July uh, really damaged uh, Montpelier and Barry and, and towns kind of all throughout that corridor in Vermont. Um, the Lost Nation Theater in Montpelier, um, they were days away um, from mounting their production of the Adams Family Musical. Um, and their home theater is in Montpelier City Hall, um, which was badly damaged in the flooding uh, to the point that it was basically unusable. Um, so they were strongly considering um, postponing uh, the show, not doing it at all. Um, one of their uh, Lost Nation lighting directors got in touch with the new ED, uh, this guy Kurt Toma, um, at the Barry Opera House and was kind of um, explaining what had happened uh, to this production. And before he could even get the question out of his mouth, Kurt offered uh, to let them use the Barry Opera House to do the show um, in Barry. So about a week later, um, they moved all their gear um, and set up house um, at the Barry Opera House. Uh, they did a two-night run um, in Barrie, and I believe they drew over a 1,000 people uh, total um, to the two shows, which is probably more than would have attended uh, the normal run in Montpelier because it's a much bigger space. Um, so it was a really great example, I think, of um, one of the things that the performing arts can do. You know, we um, it's obviously great entertainment. We love to go and you know, laugh at comedians and be moved by musicians. But um, this was really kind of a, a tangible thing that uh, the Barry Opera House was able to do uh, for the community at a time of extreme crisis um, and, and really kind of uh, listen to it uh, in that part of the state. Dan, the, uh, the Flynn is, as you said, it's sort of back to pre-pandemic programming levels, and it's black box Flynn space, where I've seen shows, uh, is kind of reawakening, too. Tell us what's going on at the Flynn. Uh, sure. So um, yeah, everybody is, I'm sure, familiar with the main stage at the Flynn, which is where you um, see acts like Mavis Staples and uh, Tony Bennett and all these great folks who have come through over the years. Um, the, the Flynn space is uh, sort of its sister theater um, downstairs in the basement um, of the Flynn, and it's a, it's a black box theater, which means it can be kind of reconfigured to suit a variety of, of different things from uh, jazz combos to experimental theater, uh, stand-up comedy, whatever. Um, and pretty much since the pandemic, it has not been in use. Um, I think just the, the margins and the overhead for um, getting it up and running um, just didn't really make a lot of sense with the types of shows that you um, would typically see there because they're not really the big ticket items. 
Um, so you're not making a ton of money on on those shows to, to open that theater. Um, but now that things are kind of back to normal and uh, audiences are returning um, to theaters. Um, it's a little bit easier for the Flynn to take a take some risks and and book some some programming there. So um, you know it's not uh, quite at the level that it was pre-pandemic, but I, I know that Jay um, and Matt Rogers, their their new director of programming. Um, they are making kind of a concerted effort um, to bring some uh, some interesting shows uh, to that space. And they've got a handful of things. Um, there's a great Abenaki artist um, that is coming uh, in a couple of weeks. Um, they're doing a uh, gay dance club um, in February called Hot Butter, um, which is a, a project that Jay um, undertook uh, last year because there's not really um, a gay club in, in Burlington at the moment. So um, he's trying to fill that need. Um, so it's really just kind of a flexible space that they can use for a variety of different purposes. Do you, uh, from this week's issue, uh, give us, tantalize us a little bit. Is there any, anything else that um, is somewhere in the issue that we should be paying attention to or that you can recommend? Give us Absolutely. Give us something fun to do. <laughs> sure. Um, so if you're uh, if you're looking for an, an interesting read, our music editor, Chris Farnsworth, um, did a great little story about uh, some of the challenges um, in the live music industry at the moment. Um, I'm sure everybody has seen, you know, Taylor Swift uh, breaking records with her Eras tour. Um, so the, the live concert industry has um, had their having record-setting profits in general, but it's very top-heavy. It's, it's artists like Taylor Swift and Bruce Springsteen and Metallica who are um, kind of breaking the bank. Um, but just below that level, um, kind of smaller touring artists, um, you know, indie bands, groups like uh, Guster, um, to, to put a Vermont band in there, um, are having a much harder time uh, kind of making ends meet, um, which is important uh, because uh, streaming has really kind of decimated um, revenue streams uh, for musicians in particular. So touring is really a, a key way for them to make money. So uh, Chris does kind of a deep dive on uh, some of the challenges um, the touring bands are facing and, and kind of how they're coping with that, um, including some pretty creative uh, strategies, I would say. Um, we also have an interview with our theater critic, um, Alex Brown, who is uh, delightful and a really incredible writer and critic. And she kind of offers some tips um, on uh, how you can sort of watch theater like she does to really get the most out of the experience. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, whether it's the Barry Opera House or the Town Hall Theater in Middlebury or the Chandler, uh, even the Lebanon Opera House over across the border, boy, we've got no shortage, no shortage of things to do. Dan Ballas from Seven Days, thanks for joining us, and we uh, appreciate your work. My pleasure. Thanks, Kevin. Okay, that's Dan Ballas from Seven Days. You can find his uh, his column and uh, the entire uh, arts issue of Seven Days on your newsstand this week. Find it anywhere, or you can go online to sevendaysvt.com. You can see it all. Uh, it's uh, Boy, there's a lot going on. I'm going to try to get over to the Barry Opera House, or at least down to the Chandler. Maybe, maybe you spend the day... Uh, Greg Titus is going to love this. We could go down to the World's Fair in Tunbridge, and then we could, and then we could uh, take in a, a, a go down to the World's Fair in Tunbridge in the afternoon, and then on your way back up to Montpelier on 89, stop into Chandler and take in one of those shows. My favorite always is the Cape Breton fiddler Natalie McMaster at the Chandler Music Hall. Uh, I think she had to cancel that this year, but uh, she'll be back. And I will be there.
are we have a special guest, uh, and it is not Elaine Haney, the executive director of Emerge Vermont, but uh, we will get to that. Welcome, Elaine, to the show. Hello, Kevin. How are you? I'm fine. I understand that Emerge Vermont is celebrating its 10th anniversary, and we have some surprises in store, but uh, why don't you tell us about the 10th anniversary to start us off? I'd love to. Thanks. So um, we were started in 2013 by former Governor Madeline Cunin, and fast forward to 2023, and we are celebrating 10 years of wonderful success with over 180 alums who have gone through our program, and so many of them are in office. And so next Saturday at the Barn at Lang Farm in Essex Junction at 630 we will be celebrating our success and raising a glass to our amazing founders, not just Governor Cunin, but a large cadre of amazing women came together to start Emerge Vermont. We're talking about folks who were um, organizers, trainers, funders, people who helped get the word out. We're just, we couldn't be here today without their work. So we're celebrating them and all of our alums, and we have some special guests including Congresswoman Becca Ballant, who is among our first cohort of graduates, and um, Ashanti Golar, who is the president of Emerge America. I don't know if a lot of people know that Emerge Vermont is part of a national organization. There are 27 affiliates across the country, and we are one of them. So we're coming together as a family of alums and supporters to celebrate to also award our Lifetime Achievement Award, which I know we're going to talk about in a few minutes. And then we're going to wrap it up with a dance party because it's been a long summer and it's time for us to kick up our heels and celebrate and blow off some steam together. So we're really looking forward to a wonderful time next Saturday night. Well, so that's going to be the place to be uh, September 23rd, 6.30 at the barn at Lang Farm. With uh, Congresswoman Becca Ballant, I assume that other Emerge alums are going to be there. Sarah Copeland-Hansis, Attorney General Charity Clark, Speaker of the House Jill Krowinski. I, I can't I, – I know we've talked about this before, Elaine, but it, it you cannot underestimate the impact of Emerge Vermont on the Vermont legislature and uh, Vermont – uh, elections and policy at, at all levels. It seems that wherever you turn, there is an Emerge Vermont graduate, uh, and it's changed uh, the landscape. It really has, Kevin. You really summed it up quite eloquently. The leaders that we have in um, the State House today and, and the fact that we've sent the first woman to Congress to represent us, we are changing the landscape of Vermont in really positive ways. We, um, The women who are in leadership right now, they are responsible for things like our Reproductive Liberty Amendment, for the Affordable Heat Act, for the landmark child care bill that was just passed, for the SHIELD law that was just passed. They are doing work to protect and uplift Vermonters every single day. And a lot of our alums are not elected, but they are in leadership across the state. Uh, just yesterday, I was at the Vermont Network Against Sexual and Domestic Violence uh, annual celebration, and um, Karen Tronsgaard Scott is the ED of that incredibly crucial organization. Amanda Gustin and Haley Perro are two alums who are working very, very hard in Barry City 
to help everybody recover from the horrible floods. There are women from Emerge in leadership all over Vermont at on select boards and school boards, in the state house, and out in the community, and we couldn't be prouder of their impact. Elaine, guess who we have joining us uh, as a surprise special guest, the pride of South Burlington High School and the University of Vermont, my friend, Bill Bright. <laughs> Kevin, uh, Elaine first, glad to meet you, um, at least this way. Uh, and Kevin, you know, like you said, we've, we've, we've gone back to our work with Boys and Girls Clubs, and who would have thought this was the way we'd reconnect after a couple of years? <laughs> Bill, it's so Elaine. nice to meet you over the phone. Oh, my gosh. Uh, well, first of all, Elaine, before we get to Bill, uh, tell us about Lavinia Dorsey Bright and the CUNIN Achievement Award. Well, the CUNIN Award has been given out for many years now, and we have had amazing recipients. The, the criteria for the award is that um, it's a woman who um, is a Democratic woman with significant political achievements, uh, a role model. Apologies, I've got an F-35 going over my house. Um, focus on policy work that expands opportunities for others and having impact on the lives of other Vermonters. And so amazing women like Mary Sullivan, Beth Pierce, Jane Stetson, Sally Sewell, they, uh, Maxine Grad, Gay Symington, they've been recipients. And... Um, one thing that Emerge Vermont is continually working on is improving our inclusiveness and the diversity of the people who receive awards from us and are trained by us and are in our leadership. And um, that's why this year we decided that we were going to um, give this award to Luvenia Dorsey Bright. She is a true trailbla trailblazer who broke a ceiling and made it possible for subsequent women of color to come into the legislature and be elected and be seen as viable candidates. And so we couldn't think of a better person to receive this award on our 10th anniversary. Well, Bill Bright, uh, gosh, can, it's such an honor to have you here. Uh, can you tell us, tell us about your mom? Well, you know, my, it's, it's, it's an interesting time for, for this to happen. These, these things have all kind of, these two things have come together. It's like the, the world put them together at the same time. Um, Cause I got the call about this award. I think the day after she passed in July. Um, but you know, my mom, she was a, a an intelligent, uh, brave, um, educated uh, African-American woman from the Midwest who moved to Vermont in the early 70s with a husband and a one-year-old in, in tow, um, you know, committed to her family and to her community, and that's what she brought to Vermont with her. And through all of her, all of her community work, um, all of her job as a teacher, um, those, those are things she always, she always just brought with her. Um, and I think what, what folks saw in the Democratic Party at the time when there was an open seat in South Burlington was, you know, a woman who, who could bring a different viewpoint, um, some professionalism, uh, and commitment and fight 
to the priorities in the state at the time. And, and that's what she did. And that's what she did the whole, the six years she was there. And, you know, besides all that, she was a, she was a daughter. She was a sister. She was a mother. She was a wife. That's, that's what my mom was. And she, and she produced you who went on to South Burlington high school and the university of Vermont, quite the basketball star. Uh, and, uh, you spent some great years working for Senator Leahy and, uh, working for the boys and girls clubs out of Washington, DC. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I, I'm not sure there are, you know, I'm not sure everyone would say I was a star <laughs> at, at UVM at least, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that's part of the legacy, right? Um, we, we kind of joke in our family, um, education and politics kind of, kind of are the family businesses, if you will. My dad was a college professor at UVM in the, in the education department. My mom was a high school teacher. Um, so my sister has gone into teaching and education. I've kind of gone into politics. But over the years, found my way back, found my way to the Boys and Girls Club. So in a similar state space um, as the education, you know, priorities and things like that. So, um, yeah, we've, we've she, the, the family has flourished. Um, my dad would say our, his children have flourished in Vermont, which is part of her legacy. We've, we've all been successful. We've grown up. We graduated. We're gamefully employed yeah well it sounds it sounds to me elaine like we need a, a portrait of lavinia dorsey bright uh, somewhere in the state house let's uh let's get a lobbying campaign going and get david sheets to I, get that moving um, i couldn't agree more Kevin. and you know it's funny you say that because um senator keisha ron hinsdale and i have been working together on preparing this award and we were talking about that very thing. And um, so she took the idea and ran with it and um, has already talked to David Sheets. And um, hopefully at our event on Saturday, we are going to be announcing a fundraiser to raise money to commission an artist to create a portrait of Luvenia Dorsey Bright to be uh, displayed in the State House. I can't think of a better way to honor her and also to liven up the presence of all the portraits of old white guys in the state house. Let's shake it up and get some more representative portraits going on in there. She deserves there's, the there's, there's, there's one problem with this, which means that Bill Bright's going to be coming back to Vermont a lot, and I'm going to have to, you know, take him out to lunch, and, and uh, he's going <laughs> to stick me with the bill. But uh, I can't wait uh. to see him. <laughs> you, you couldn't spend your money any any better, Kevin. I don't think. <laughs> and uh, it, I'm told by uh, Greg Titus in the control room that we have Keisha Rom Hinsdale on the line. State Senator uh, Rom Hinsdale, welcome to the show. Good morning, Kevin. It's so nice to join Elaine and Bill to honor Luvenia. I'm I'm honored to be here. And as you heard from Elaine, um, you know. We just thought a portrait would be such a great point of convening and um, a place where we can draw strength. And so we're very excited to get that going. So, uh, Keisha Ram Hinsdale, I'm going to ask you an uncomfortable question, at least for people like white people like me, but it's got to be asked. And that is, what took us so long? Why, why, mm. why, 
what, what took us so long to mention the words Lavinia Dorsey Bright and portrait in the same sentence? You know, why didn't we do this 20 years ago? Well, I mean, you know, my whole field of study is about how the legacy of women of color often gets erased, um, you know, that there's a lot of silence around their achievements and accomplishments. Um, and, and you probably heard from Bill, you know, um, Lavinia was encouraged not to talk about her race. I was encouraged not to talk about it when I ran. I think we're finally open to understanding that, you know, it might make people uncomfortable, but that discomfort is growth. Um, and the best thing we can do is honor somebody for being a pioneer, um, you know, even if they weren't acknowledged that way in their life. Yeah. No, that's – do we know, uh, Bill or Keisha or Elaine, do we know what committee, uh, as a political junkie of the legislature, do we know what co- co- legislative committee uh, Representative Bright served on? Uh, yeah, I do. She was on the, um, I guess at the time it was the health and wellness um, mm-hmm. health committees, and, and yeah. I think she was on the government, um, I'm not sure exactly what it was called, government operations, government reform right. committee. So you know, it's a good time to mention that there is. health and wellness, I believe, at the time. Right. There's. Go ahead, Keisha. Uh, Sorry, there's one legislator left who served with her. And, Bill, um, I just gave her your email and your phone number. That's Representative Alice Emmons. Um, we, she, uh, she was, you know, struck to hear of her loss. And we now have, you know, the dean of the house is the only person left who served with her and wanted to reach out to you and just share her memories. Um, so I thought that was nice. Well, we, I we bet I'm just – I'm betting that uh, that Lavinia Bright was followed by Vi Luganbuehl and Helen Reilly uh, at some level, and Helen uh, then went on to the state senate and now is the, I believe, the chair of the city council in in, in South Burlington. So, um, yeah. gosh, what what a great event this is going to be, uh, Bill. What was it like growing up in that household with a dad at UVM and your mom in the legislature? It was challenging. It was challenging. Um, but I don't know that I could have had two, two better coaches, parents, um, you know, two better people to guide me um, coming up uh, in, in, in South Burlington. Um, I think, you know, they, they, they took a chance. When my dad got offered the job at the university, they took a chance to move from Detroit, Michigan, to South Burlington, Vermont, understanding in 1971 the challenges that would accompany such a move and knowing you can always go back home if things don't work out the way you think they're going to work out. Um, but they, they allowed my sister and they allowed myself to have normal, not that we want to have normal childhoods elsewhere, but to be as normal a kid in South Burlington, Vermont, as anybody else, right? We lived in a neighborhood. Uh, there was an Indian family. There was us. There was a mixed Asian family. And that was the diversity in the neighborhood. Um, they allowed us to to just be kids, right? Um 
and they had our and and they had our back whether we knew it or not. If they were seeing things that looked like they were going sideways, they might have side conversations um, with 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 other parents to just let's cut this off now <laughs> type of thing. Uh, but yeah. they really allowed us, you know, and then travel things like that to see see the world and know the world is bigger than where your cousins live in Detroit. It's bigger than where you live in Vermont. The world is a big place. Let's go out and experience it. Um, so they really did a, a great job with that. And, you know, they, they were the best. But it was challenging because they were really smart people, and they didn't take a lot of guff from their kids. They kept us in love. <laughs> there you go. Well, Elaine Haney, uh, Keshram Hinsdale, and Bill Bright, uh, you're so kind to join us, and uh, we look forward to the CUNIN Award being given to former Representative Bright, and uh, and we look forward to your 10th anniversary uh, dance party. Uh, have a great time. Tickets are available September 23rd at 6.30 p.m. at the barn at Lang Farm in Essex Junction. Uh, congratulations, Bill, and it's great to hear your voice again. And I, I uh, congratulate, congratulations to all of you. And I just love Thank to add you. that we're looking for sponsors now for the portrait. Um, so if a business is listening in, if somebody who's moved by her story is listening in, um, please reach out to me. I'm easy to find. Okay, start with Ernie Pomerlope. If you're out there, Ernie, in <laughs> case show call, time to get out the checkbook. Uh, there isn't a better cause. And uh, congratulations to everybody. Thanks for coming. Thanks for your thank time, you. Kevin. Thank you for thank having you. us. Thank you very much. And thank you, Emerge Vermont, for, for this honor. We're really humbled. Oh, thank you, Bill. Okay. Have a good time. September 23rd at the, at the barn at the Lang Farm. Uh, boy, Bill Bright uh, is quite a guy, basketball player at South Burlington High, UVM, and uh, I did consulting work for Bill. We became very close, and he's just a fabulous guy. What a great night. What a great night that's going to be. That is our show for today. My, th- my thanks to all of us, uh, all of our guests, Chris Killian, Bob Nay, Dan Ballas, Elaine Haney, Keisharam Hinsdale, Bill Bright, if you want to be a guest on the show, send me a suggestion or uh, for a topic. Send me an email at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. doesn't have to be a fancy press release. Just send me an email. Our goal at the show is always to illuminate and inform. The show becomes a podcast at wdevradio.com. And, of course, you can listen live to the show wherever you are in the world. I am here Wednesdays and Fridays. You can find me at kevinkls.com. Subscribe to my weekly newsletter called Conflict of Interest. My podcast, Conflict of Interest, examines the issues we deal with on this show. Next Wednesday, we're planning a show on homelessness, focusing on how the flooding has affected people without housing and what we all, including state government, are doing about it and the complexities around finding homes for everyone. We look forward to that along with your calls. Send me your questions that you want answered about this issue. Our guests will include journalists reporting on the issue, government officials charged with solving this problem, and activists and those who have suffered from lack of housing. As always, we'll talk politics and everything else going on in Vermont and the nation and everything else on my mind and yours. Our show is produced by me, engineered, made possible 
by Greg Titus today through the Looking Glass and all the folks at WDEV. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis, and we'll see you right back here Wednesday on Vermont Viewpoint, live radio on the friendly pioneer, WDEV.